everyone, back again. Today we're gonna to finish up volume two of Capital. Here we're gonna look at, and we're gonna look at part three today of the reproduction and circulation of the total social capital, which is the last part of the book. Now, before jumping into it, if you wanna follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. If you're new here, welcome. I don't know what you're doing with this fourth episode being the first one you're at, but if you're new here, uh, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe, you'll see videos I release every week, including you can go back and check out uh, any, however many I have up now, a couple hundred. Uh, you can go check those out. Um, if you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find it on YouTube, uh, where I sometimes release videos. So that's cool. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form and there shouldn't be any ads, at least for now. Uh, I might be able to work soon and I might need to start monetizing them uh, to make some anyways uh, if you uh, want to help me out you can do that via patreon or paypal but obviously no pressure um, if you and you can help me out by liking sharing subscribing of course and uh, yeah let's let's jump into this last part of capital here now so far in this book we've been concerned with the individual movement of capital within specific industries uh, we haven't really considered how industries relate to one another all that much. And in this part, we are going to consider the relationship between industries that Marx homogenizes under the industries that produce the means of production in contrast to industries that produce the means of consumption. But we're going to get into that as we go on here. Now, the total social capital from the title of the, the part, that is the reproduction and circulation of the total social capital, is comprised of the totality of movements of autonomous capitalists, of all the different capitalists and different industries they are capitalists of. So far, we've only, as I said, only been concerned really with individual capitalists, individual industries. So money stands in for value, but with the totality or the total of all social capital, what we see is the possibility through expanded reproduction is the possibility to like really move money away from representing value in any coherent way. And he just says kind of quickly here, and there are a few moments throughout the text when he compares the capitalist mode of production to either a collective or a social one. He compares this uh, to a, a social form of uh, economic development or economic um, conduct that would do away with money as such, money that just stands in for value and can just um, expand indefinitely essentially with another signifier that would stand in directly for workers labor like a credit system or something uh, at least this is what he puts in place of of money now he doesn't actually elaborate on this point here so it's difficult to know what that would actually look like because it raises a few uh, alarm bells and how do you actually assess the value of labor but in any case that's what he gives us here now he, here he returns again to previous ideas about the uh, circulation and reproduction of the total social capital. So again, it's going to be a little bit repetitive, but it's important. So he looks at the physiocrats once again, specifically Quesnay's uh, Tableau Economique, in which it describes production as embodying value put into it through uh, labor or labor producing value. But this only really comes about through agriculture for the physiocrats, for Quesnay. Uh, so surplus for them comes only from the production and agriculture that brings more from the earth. So as, uh, as I guess, labor gets more efficient for them, I assume, and is able to extract more from the earth, it gets more uh, valuable. But that's not really the case for uh, Marx and 
um, Smith, I don't think either, because the more efficient that labor gets, the actually less valuable it is because it is able to produce more in a less, uh, in a shorter amount of time, it can do things easier. Labor is then less, uh, desired. You can hire even fewer laborers. So as for Adam Smith, he believed that total social wealth is presented in three ways. For example, as, or not for example, he believed they were presented as wages, profit, or rent. So for Smith, the total social capital, which can be understood as the gross revenue, is their total social produce, everything that is produced at the end of the day, whereas the net revenue, so not the gross revenue, but the net revenue, is what remains after we factor in all the costs of all the capitalists in their respective industries, how much they paid to actually produce the, the things that came out at the end. Now, this is interesting because Smith is like only working in terms of simple reproduction. He's not accounting for costs of actually expanding industry. He's just covering... Uh, thinking that capitalists, all they'll do is spend money to cover the cost of their production and, and all that, and they'll take the rest of the money and, and enjoy fruitful lives, and that'll be it. Which is why in Adam Smith, it's all about equilibrium. Things will just naturalize themselves. So Marx adds to this entire uh, framework that Smith gives us, adds to wages, profits, and rent, the, um, the money that is uh, destined for productive, to be productive capital. Now, Smith presents us with two broad kinds of industries that comprise the totality of all industries. And those are industries that produce the means of production. So these are industries that consumers don't buy from. Everyday workers don't buy from these industries because these industries are producing like coal or they're producing machines or they're producing uh, linen that only capitalists are going to use in order to add to their productive forces. They're going to buy coal to work in their factory. They're going to buy linen to turn into uh, shirts or whatever. They're going to buy machines to work in their factory. Now, both of these industries are going to be pumping out products that are going to be bought. Hence, they'll have some uh, bearing on the entire uh, social product. And Smith adds, though, that if you were to actually look at the entire social product, it can all be reduced to variable capital plus surplus value. Constant capital doesn't play a part at all, to which you might say, well, wait, 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 wait. But it costs a, a, a capitalist like $1,000 for that machine, and that's going to factor into the cost. So obviously of the things they produce. So obviously that's going to have a part in the product. But remember, all products on earth, all commodities are reducible to human labor. No commodity just falls down from the sky. Everything can be reduced to the cost of labor that went into it. So Let's take one enterprise. Let's look at the production of a car. Each part of the car was brought to that plant or to that industry, to that factory to be put into a car through labor. Each one of those parts of the car were made through labor. So if you go back far enough through any production process in any part of it, you are going to find labor at the very beginning. Labor is what began the entire process. Now, Smith goes wrong, even though he's right about this thing that everything is really reducible to labor or to variable capital plus surplus, which is the added that's taken out of uh, variable capital. But he says then that uh, revenue kind of begins the whole thing, this idea about primitive accumulation. There was some kind of uh, reserve of money that just made everything start going. Now, to say that this is the original part 
of capital capitalist accumulation confounds the history of capitalist accumulation. It just gets it totally totally wrong. The entire revenue of society is is then for Smith the sum of all the wages paid. That is revenue for workers plus the surplus value extracted, the revenue for capitalists. So in this way, he only thinks about profit as surplus value that is taken out of workers as stuff that the the capitalists are just going to spend on themselves, on useless things that they'll enjoy, big houses and, and whatnot. It does not factor into the added exponential uh, portion of that that's going to go back into production in order to expand industry that is going to increase the overall social product, the total social product or social capital. So his formula only really works in simple reproduction where that type of expansion isn't occurring. So another, uh, another issue produced from his focus on simple reproduction is that he conflates value of the uh, annual product with the annual value product. So the latter, so the annual value product, is simply what was produced any year, whereas the former, the value of the annual product, considers the whole value produced in the previous years and that is now also found in new products. And this is a, it's such a fascinating idea to me because when we look at a product that is made, it is not, the, the value of that thing as it is represented in money or as it is represented abstractly in value is not really reducible to the materials that went into that specific thing uh, or the machines or the variable, the wages that went into it. It Part of that that is found in that product owes its debt to the entire history of capitalist development up until that point. So let's say it was a shoe that uses a specific kind of machine to make the shoe. The value of that shoe is going to be largely predicated upon the entire history of the machine that went into making that shoe and the successive moments of value that went through with that. So shoes have been coming down in price. Well, um, yeah, ostensibly, uh, the trickle-down economic theory, right? Things have been coming down in price, making people uh, have more, more money to spend on things that they want, yada, yada, yada. Now, this is owed largely to the fact that over the course of history in economic development, the cost of things have been have been coming down in terms of uh, revolutions in technology that have been making the prices of things come down. So the value of any given thing is not reducible to what went into it like that year. So this is the distinction that Smith gets wrong that Marx fixes to say that there is a difference between the value of the annual product, which is, in the, it, you know, it is the value of the entire history of capitalist, capitalist accumulation in that product versus the annual value product. So real living labor that went into making a product is not the only determining factor to a thing's value because there's all the dead or objectified labor that is still found in the machinery, still found in the raw materials, still found in the, the developments in um, labor, how orga labor is organized, that also will affect and determine the cost, the value of the thing. So then Marx considers a number of other economists who get this stuff way wrong. And I, I you know, I could go through each one of them that he talks about, uh, but it, the point is that they all just borrow from Smith and they're all wrong. So you can go, if you're so inclined, you can find out about each one of them and how they're wrong. But so thinkers like uh, Proudhon, uh, Mill, Say, these 
political economists get everything totally wrong because they just uncritically borrow some of these key terms from Smith. So here he considers in much more detail simple reproduction, kind of what Smith took for granted when in fact that's not really the case. So the entire annual product can be traced to constant capital plus variable capital plus surplus. And here we are assuming that the surplus, the revenue for the capitalist, is, is just that. It's just revenue. It's not actually put back as capital. So in this case, we consider constant plus variable plus surplus value as being the totality of the, the, the entire annual product. But again, constant capital can also be understood as variable capital plus surplus value because every single thing of constant capital, be it a building, be it raw materials, machinery, whatever, they're all reducible to the labor that went into them. It's just that this this knowledge isn't readily available to the capitalist. They only know the cost they paid for uh, the machine at that time. They don't necessarily know if that actually reflects the history of that machine because the capitalist who sold that machine might have done their math wrong or whoever did the math might have done their math wrong, in which case it might not actually reflect it. So the capitalist just has to take the price they paid for the machine or the building or whatever as being that uh, that price. And this then stands in for C, for the constant capital here, plus the variable capital, plus, um, plus the surplus. So of the entire social capital, as I've already mentioned, there are those industries that, com that uh, build the means of production versus industries that produce the means of consumption. So mean, let's assume this is the totality of all social production. You have industries on one side, we'll call them industry one, uh, producing the means of production. They make machines, they make houses or, or buildings, they make raw materials that average everyday workers never buy. So this industry is reserved for capitalists. So capitalists from the means of production industry are going to buy from here. Uh, and as well, the capitalists of the means of, of consumption industry are going to buy from there as well. So... On the other hand, we have the means of consumption industry. These are industries that are going to produce food. They're going to produce shelter for people. So workers are actually going to only buy, like, and I say only, but like 99% of the time in this framework, they're only going to buy from the sellers of the means of consumption. So what that means then is that the means of production create the possibility for the means of uh, consumption to some extent. Because the means of consumption capitalists have to buy machinery, buildings from the means of production capitalists that they can then employ in their own business in the means of consumption so that they can sell products to workers from both the means of consumption and the means of uh, production. So capitalists buy from both industries. They buy from the means of consumption because they need to buy food. They need to buy shelter. And they also buy from the means of production, buy machinery for their own business. Whereas workers uh, will buy only from the means of consumption. They only buy from that area uh, that sells products that they can afford because they probably can't afford uh, their own factory. So workers from the means of production earn a wage from the capitalists of the means of production that the workers then go over to the means of consumption factories or factories industries and buy food from them by shelter or whatever. And the same applies to the means of consumption industries. So capitalists of the means of consumption pay workers who then 
spend money in that industry. And it's a very good trick like um, for uh, an, a business to do this. If a business is able to make their workers buy from them exclusively, what is happening is the money that they're paying out to workers just comes right back to them. It's really quite genius. And I remember when I was younger, I used to work uh, for any Canadians out there. I used to work at Tim Hortons. And there were people that would like that were workers there that would hang out at Tim Hortons. And I, at the time, I remember thinking like, you know, you're just giving your money like right back to them, right? You just worked eight hours and you're still here buying food. Like they're laughing all the way to the bank because they just, you were just exploited. And now you're giving that little bit you have left over right back to them. Now that's a very specific example. Really the point that Marx is making here is looking at the entirety of all industries that produce the means of consumption to kind of make an abstract whole, a, a, a homogenous whole out of it. And then saying that all people, and he's right about this, uh, earning wages, don't make a lot of money, can only buy from them. So people working in those industries of the means of consumption are always only giving their money right back to the very capitalists that uh, bought their labor power. So if the products of the means of cons of production, sorry, so building machines, factories, whatever, if the products there are bought by the means of consumption and by other industries in the means of production, like let's say a factory focuses on building machines, another one focuses on building buildings, whatever, uh, they're going to buy from each other. All of the means of consumption industries need to buy from the means of production industries. So all the constant capital of the means of consumption industries, buildings, factories, uh, buildings, um, you know, uh, machines, all that stuff, comes from the means of production. So the product of the means of production is the same thing as the constant capital of the means of consumption, which is an ad added point that we're going to build on in a little bit. Now, the means of consumption industries can be broken up into two broad groups. There is the mean, there are the means of consumption industries that make the necessary stuff for everyone, but then there, there are luxury ones because capitalists want to separate themselves from the plebs, right? They don't want to associate with uh, the regular folk. And so they're going to do that by adorning themselves with different uh, clothing or with jewelry or whatever that they can only acquire from certain industries. Now, the existence of luxury industries among the means of consumption industries more generally, it, it has to be less than the uh, necessary means of consumption industries. Because if there was more labor being put into means of consumption for luxury goods, that means that there would be le fewer people or fewer industries actually making the requisite or the necessary amount of necessities for everybody. And so people would just die. So like the case of the means of production industries, where the workers get paid and then they run over to the means of consumption industries to buy bread and shelter, very much within the means of consumption industries in the luxury areas, those workers are going to take their money and then run over to the means of consumption of necessary goods and buy food and shelter there. Now, a point that Marx extracts from this is to say that a sum of value equal to the total surplus value is realized in the, in the consumption fund. That is, what, that is the amount circulating that people are going to be using to spend money on. But given just the impossibility of properly assessing certain needs, 
There could be a boom in population in which the demand has increased. There could be a reduction in population, like with the Black Plague, where the demand has gone way down, but the supply is way too high. Uh, there could It's so easy for things to go awry. Crises are going to unfold, and crises are then going to lead to equilibrium, but they'll come to equilibrium after people have died, after people have gone hungry, and you know horrible things have, have occurred. Now, in all of this, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that laborers, workers, are the originators of value because they're just, in, as I'm framing it here, they're only being bought by capitalists who seem to already have valuable capital, uh, as though they are the originators of capital, when in fact, of course, it is the workers. Now, where does, if, if the means of production supply the means of consumption industries with their constant capital, with their factories, with their uh, machines, and so on, where does the constant capital of the means of production come from? If, if, unless it takes it from another means of production industry, but where did they get it from? Where did this all originate from? And again, this is a kind of mystery that haunts this text. And, you know, capitalism seems to presuppose itself insofar as variable capital and uh, the surplus value taken out of it has to be spent somewhere when it is uh, made, which would imply that there's an entire productive apparatus already in existence that are making objects of consumption that the capitalist can spend money on. So if we accept that the product of the MOP or the MOP of the means of production, it is, as I have in my notes written abbreviated as MOP, the MOP, God, if the product of the means of production is what is transformed into the uh, constant capital of the means of consumption, then that means that the V, the variable capital plus the surplus value, which is the product of the uh, means of production industries, that means then that that is exactly the same thing as the constant capital in the means of consumption industries, which means that the entire social product, if it is reducible to variable capital plus surplus value at the end of the day of all the industries, and we know that the variable capital plus the surplus value is in the product of the uh, means of production is the exact same as the constant capital in the means of consumption, then therefore the entire social product can be broken down into the constant capital in the means of consumption plus its variable plus its uh, surplus value, all in the means of consumption. Now we can only really do this when we think of the total social character because it erases the real production that goes on in the means of production and it erases the fact that not all that, well, we are dealing with simple reproduction here in Adam Smith's fairy tale world where things will always be sold for the price they want to be sold for and, and everything just works out uh, perfectly. We, uh, if we don't assume that though, in the means of production industry, not everything gets sold to the means of consumption industry. Some of it won't be sold, but that doesn't mean it won't be sold in the future in another year and will then make up the, uh, the product then. Just because it hasn't been sold in this uh, one year is just... Anyways, yeah. So this here again, he says, this is what separates capitalism from other uh, economic systems in the capitalist economy invested in production. Uh, or the sorry, the capitalist economy invests in production. That won't immediately translate to revenue and that only exists as capital. And it also offers uh, more for some than they actually... Than need actually demands. That is, it forms a stock so that there's going to be more supply than demand, which is untenable because that'll lead to a crisis where there's 
um, the demand will go down to nothing. There's all this stock that's just not being used. And then the capitalists won't be able to employ workers. And it's just going to be a terrible cycle. Now, in the relationship between the means of production industries and the means of consumption industries, there is an issue that emerges. Because if the means of consumption industries are only selling um, or only buying the means of production uh, products, that is the factory, the machines, everything like that, to use as their own constant capital, and they're paying, they're paying their workers like $100, let's say, the total sum given to workers is $100, that $100 is going to come right back to them of which they're going to make a $100 surplus, how do we actually account for the cost of covering wear and tear of this machinery, assuming that it's not going to be put back into uh, capital as, um, as capital in the case of simple reproduction? Because these machines aren't going to last forever, of course. And let's not forget either that all the workers are going to be going to the means of consumption to actually uh, earn their, earn the money that they, earn the food that they need and the shelter. So in that case, they are screwing over all the buyers of who are workers who are paying more than they are earning from the industry of the means of production, which means that they're going to have to get paid more in the means of production industry to cover these higher costs, which is going to keep us at a state of equilibrium that isn't actually going to account for the possibility of handling wear and tear, of handling uh, other costs. And so what we see produced here is just um, an endless cycle of capitalism trying to cover the costs of its own deficits, which is why, you know, you look at any country and there's these these inordinate, exorbitant deficits and it makes no makes no sense. Like how does how does how does this actually proceed the way that it does? And I know that this is kind of a a high school kid like first learning about this thing, like, oh wow, the debt like it can't be sustainable. Obviously there are economic explanations for why it is sustainable. I'm not saying that, but it should raise some eyebrows as to how such a thing can be sustainable. But in any case, uh, that's just me. Someone yell at me in the comments and tell me why I'm why I'm wrong. So it might remedy this by um, using foreign trade. So it, instead of you know uh, paying for things in one country, it'll then look to another country and acquire some more wealth that it will then apply to its uh, industry in order to cover these costs. But all this does is it transfers the contradictions of capitalism globally. So it might fix the problem momentarily in, at home, but it has just sent the problem overseas. And it always seems as though capitalists acquire money for free in this whole thing, not just through surplus value, but if you have workers going from the means of production to the means of consumption to buy things, and they are paying more for it than they are earning, then the, uh, the means of production capitalists are saving and the means of consumption capitalists are, are, are earning more. And then they're just, it's, it's like the capitalists are just feeding each other their own money that they're giving to the workers who are steadily uh, deteriorating. They're steadily being more and more exploited. Meanwhile, the capitalists are essentially throwing money at one another that's being mediated through the workers. Now, this also reveals another problem. So let's say that capitalists pay workers a hundred total dollars and they want to extract $200 of surplus from it. So they'll charge $200 for the product, assuming that that's the case. But workers only have the means to buy $100 worth of products. So all the capitalist is doing is just getting their money right back. They aren't earning more, which is just a mystery as to how, how uh, accumulation can actually occur, how growth can actually occur. But 
Anyways, he, he just presents this mystery and then leaves us with it. So now he considers in not enough detail, in my opinion, accumulation and reproduction on an extended scale. So he's not just thinking about simple reproduction here. So when surplus value is created in production and those commodities are sold, the surplus money is held onto by the capitalists as a hoard. You know, they aren't putting it back into uh, their industry. So in such a system, we can't really understand why people buy it all because that would only diminish that hoard because they, would, they wouldn't have their hoard anymore if they're out buying things for themselves. So if we remember with the means of production and the means of consumption and simple reproduction, the means of production bought products from the means of consumption. So capitalists and workers from the means of production had to buy their subsistence and luxuries from the means of consumption. Uh, and that means of consumption then used that money to cover the costs of their constant and variable capital, which would just feed back into the means of production. And we have this cycle going on and on and on. Now, in a system of extended reproduction or accumulation and reproduction on an extended scale, what we actually see is the capitalists of the means of production, instead of giving their total product to the uh, capitalists of the means of consumption, they're going to hold on to a bit of it that they're going to put into their own business to expand it. So now the capitalists of the means of consumption are getting less than they had previously, which it, it's going to reveal its own uh, mysteries in itself. But that is the only way in which the, the originator, ostensibly, of this process, the means of production, are going to be able to grow themselves. And with this, we see supply increase uh, and the supply of money increase on like an exponential scale. And he uses a term here, virtual, he calls this virtual constant capital. Um, and I actually don't know how how this ter term works here. I don't know the German word, uh, but we could think of it in a few different ways. It can be a kind of haunting constant capital, a mysterious one. It could be a constant capital that has less of an attachment to uh, value than it once did or, or so on, whatever. So despite the, ex the appearance of expanded reproduction as bigger, it is only really bigger relatively. We still have the same value circulating, but that value is circulating among more products. Now, in the case of industries such as the means of production and means of consumption industries, we are confronted with an issue on how they both expand. So, as I said, if the means of production gives only a, a smaller portion to the means of consumption industries, then that means that it's going to be harder for the means of consumption industries to actually grow. Well, one possible solution, and this is probably something Adam Smith would say, would just be to decrease wages. And then uh, the capitalists of um, the means of consumption will then make more money. But the problem that will arise then is that workers will just die and there won't be a supply of workers to work for you because you can't just superficially or artificially decrease wages. They have to follow uh, a certain equilibrium. They have to follow the real uh, value of wages in order not to uh, lead to disequilibrium so that you know people can actually live. Now, one possible explanation for this that Marx only kind of entertains is that in the capitalist mode of production, capitalists aren't always successful. They often fail. In fact, a lot of the time they fail. And when they fail, what that means is that they gave more than they received, which means that somewhere down the line, someone has earned more money and other capitalists has earned more money. So that might explain how some industries are able to just kind of keep growing uh, while others can can sink. 
because there's always going to be losers, even among the capitalist class. And I think that that, that gets lost a bit because he does address it. And he says that there are going to be losers, but it'll just mean that their, their riches are a little less rich. But that doesn't account for the fact that every, there are lots, there are very many losers who are giving up more than they're actually taking in, which is a, is a deficit, is a negative to, in some sense, balance out some of the positives. At least this is one, I think, one possible explanation as to how uh, this mystery can be resolved. But of course, there's still like the inordinate growth of, of wealth. I can't, I can't explain that. But this is one hypothesis. For anyone who has a better background of economics, I'd love to hear about what you'd have to say about this. Now, in terms of the actual use or the, the application of surplus value to expansion, it can't just happen by throwing it at constant capital. So the means of consumption industry doesn't just take the profits that it makes and throws it at uh, the means of production industry to buy more machines. They also need to buy more labor power in order to work those machines, or they need to buy uh, more raw materials in terms of circulating capital and so on. Now, this is what the entire process might look like. Hypothetically, here's just an example. Let's say we have a means of production industry, the totality of all the industries has $1,000 or a 1000 worth of constant capital working, and they produce or they uh, give a, a $500 to their workers among the whole industry. So let's assume an exploitation rate of 100%, surplus value rate of 100%, they then make 500 in surplus value. So to reiterate, they have 1000 as C, 500 as V, variable capital, plus 500 as surplus, so a total of 2000. Now, if you recall, the constant capital of the means of consumption is going to be equal to the product of the means of production. That means, because the means of production is really just V plus S, variable capital, plus the surplus extracted from it, which was 500 and 500, then the means of production or the, the constant capital of the means of consumption is going to be 1,000 as well. Now, this was a case of simple reproduction. Let's imagine instead that instead of that thousand, which is the V plus the S of the means of production, instead of that thousand going into the means of consumption, 900 goes into it. So now the capitalist of the means of production keeps 100 for themselves that they apply to their own industry to expand it. So in order to cover that lost cost, because the means of consumption still want the thousand, they're going to have to find that thousand, that that one hundred, to make up that cost somewhere else. So they might charge it to their, uh, uh, they might take it out of their surplus value, out of the revenue, whatever, to cover that cost. But here we can't actually explain for their growth, right? Their actually their actual expansion, and it might actually need to be more than a hundred, right? Because we we can't forget, and I just forgot, but we can't forget that some has to then go to variable capital as well. So it might instead be. 120. So 100 will go to uh, the constant capital. And then 20 will have to go to the variable capital in order to have workers that are going to work uh, with these new machines or these new means of production within the means of consumption and, and so on. Now this 20 that goes to variable capital can be valorized, right? As we understand variable capital to be the site of valorization, let's say again at 100%. Then it produces $20, 20 extra dollars upon the cost that it has now added to the means of consumption. So $20, if we assume still this one to five ratio or one to six ratio as we had 
uh, were $20 in variable capital where we had 100, sorry, 100 go into uh, constant capital, so one to five. And this 20 produces 20 in surplus. This 20 in surplus to cover the costs now is going to have to just go back into the system to cover, uh, to put $16 into, um, or like $17 into constant capital while putting four into variable capital. And so what we get here is just this kind of simple reproduction occurring once again, where we can't explain this, this possibility for growth, at least not very clearly. And it's on that note that he kind of abruptly ends the book. And it, again, it wasn't his book. It was his notes that Engels had compiled into a book where he says that essentially we're going to be confronted with capitalists who form these hordes in terms of like simple reproduction, not actually expanding their industries. And then we have those that are going to be accumulating money um, and expanding, uh, expanding their industry. And for someone who really or someone who takes on this issue in a lot of detail, there's uh, Rosa Luxemburg. And I think her book is called The Accumulation of Capital. And I remember years ago, I presented on this in a seminar. And it was, um, it was difficult because very much like I was doing today, but in a lot more detail, I was presenting uh, all the mathematical equations, which was a which was a challenge, to say the least. Anyways, yeah, that pretty much rounds out the second volume of Capital. Um, if anyone made it this far, I really applaud you. You know, I'm I'm sorry this has to go on for four episodes, but it's I don't see another way other than having like hour and twenty long minute episodes or something, and that would be not so good. Um, I don't think at least I don't know. It might be better. Who knows? Uh, if you like what I did, I'd love to hear about it. You know, you can like, share, subscribe. You can contribute via Patreon or PayPal if you're interested in that at all. If I got anything wrong as well, I would love to hear about it. And uh, yeah. Thanks for listening this far, and I'll catch you next time. Take care.